First Timothy chapter six this morning. First Timothy chapter six. It's often said that Jesus spoke more about money than he did any other topic. In fact, I was looking at an article in preaching today that cited these statistics that sixteen out of Jesus' thirty eight parables mention money or how to handle money. Do the math on that? About a third, right? So 16 out of Jesus' 38 parables at least mention money. In the Gospels, one out of every 10 verses deals with money. The Bible has over 500 verses about prayer. It has 500 verses about faith. But it has over 2,000 verses on money and possessions. That's what this Preaching Today article cited. And so there's this impression, and it's often repeated, that Jesus spoke more about many, money than any other subject. Well, I don't mean to burst any bubbles today, but the problem with those statistics is that while money is oftentimes mentioned in the scriptures, it's more often used to illustrate spiritual points. It's not really about money. The reality of it is that Jesus spoke more about the kingdom of God, he spoke more about faith and salvation and hell even, than he did about money. But, nonetheless, Jesus in the Bible does talk about money. In our passage last week, we remember that Timothy was warned by Paul about the destruction that comes upon false teachers whose primary desire is to become rich. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 again from last week. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 9 from last week, he says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I've mentioned to you a couple of times now, a few times probably, I've been doing some reading on um, the new apostolic reformation, which involves things like Hillsong and um, Bethel Church and IHOP, which is not the restaurant, it's the International House of Prayer, and how many of their leaders um, are living in very expensive homes. They do sermons and speeches for twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a pop. They get up on stage and they're wearing five and six thousand dollar sneakers and four thousand dollar sweaters and and what we've seen with many of them is they have fallen. The two seem to go hand in hand, and that's exactly what Paul warned Timothy about. Those false teachers who seek riches, they use their, their feigned godliness to pursue wealth, oftentimes ends up in destruction. And so he warned Timothy about that. He also then went on and warned Timothy about being content with what God provides and to flee from the pursuit of such things. Look at um, verses 11 through 12. He says, but flee, this is you, Timothy, but you flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So what he had challenged Timothy on is that Timothy would flee from those things, that he wouldn't pursue wealth and pursue riches, but rather pursue spiritual things. And so that was the bulk of what we talked about last week. We get to today, which is right at the very end of 1 Timothy. We've only got, after today, we've only got two more verses. Paul's final challenge to Timothy before we finish up the book. And so, in some respects, as Paul has done elsewhere, as he gets to the end of a letter, and it's sort of um, that garbage list, if you will. You know, it's just the last few things that we need to touch on, and, and this is kind of it. And so he's on this topic of wealth is wealth and riches and so he's warned about the false teachers who pursue it he's warned Timothy to flee from that and then now he deals with a subset of people within the church to some degree he refers to them as those who are rich or wealthy in this present age let's go ahead and read those verses 17 through 19 again a short passage this morning He says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, 
but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life Indeed. So that'll be the bulk of our passage today. I'm going to break it down into three pieces. We all know that every good sermon breaks down into three pieces. It always does. That's just the rule of the Bible. So we have three points again this morning. We're even going to use some alliteration because we also know that really good sermons have alliteration all the time. So we're going to look at the warnings, I'm sorry, the um, dangers of wealth. We're going to look at the duties of wealth. And we're going to look at the dividends of using wealth appropriately. So again, we'll look at the dangers, the duties, and the dividends of wealth. Now, before I do that, though, I want to make sure that we can address what it means to be rich in this present world. Paul is obviously speaking about financial wealth in this passage. That is well established on our previous verses. But what and who defines what it means to be rich? Rich is kind of a relative term in many ways. But I googled it. Because all good sermons start with googling, right? So I googled it. What does it mean to be rich for us? Well, according to Google, some experts say that you have to make at least $120,000 a year. And if you do, you're rich. That was one thing. Others said you had to make at least $500,000 a year. So now we have at least some bookends. You've got to make at least between $120,000 and $500,000 to be rich. That's what Google says. Others said that it depends on where you live. For instance, $100,000 a year in some small podunk town in Arkansas might mean that you are stinking filthy rich, while living in New York on $100,000 or in Manhattan, you might not be able to pay your light bill. Others said that it's less about income and more about your possessions, how much you actually have, whether that's in your savings or whether that's um, the, the home you have or the possessions that you have. There's some financial expert I've been listening, or I just I hear his commercials on, I think it's 610 sometimes, and he talks about the middle class millionaire. And what he's referring to are those who have a sizable 401k, which would put them into that millionaire category, but their day-to-day income and other things, they can't live like a millionaire. So really, my point in this is, what does it mean to be rich? It's somewhat relative. And before we might do what we often do, well, I'm not rich, they're rich, because they make more than me, or they have a bigger house than me, or they wear fancier clothes than I do. I think we have to be very careful because from a biblical perspective, oftentimes rich refers to those who have more than what they need on a day-to-day basis. And this would be especially true when we compare, say, ourselves here in the United States to many parts of the world. You know, I think we sometimes fall into the trap of struggling to meet our own bills and to you know, as I said, keep the lights on and other things um, here in the United States, but we fail to remember that by many standards in the world, there are people, probably 80% of the population around the world, that lives literally day to day, that doesn't have enough to put food on the table. And so I think we have to be very careful. So if you can permit me this, I know that we are all in different economic places. Okay, Some make more than others. Um, I've been at points in my life where I've struggled to pay the bills and I've got other times where I have no trouble paying the bills. Okay, But I want to caution us to sort of say the rich, it doesn't apply to us because we're not, we're not rich. Now, right within our own church family, many of you have probably struggled with the same thing. You know? Um, so, What I'm going to do as we approach this passage is look at it from the standpoint of what do we do simply with what God has given to us? Because in some respects, we are rich, even though we may struggle financially sometimes. Even Paul himself, you know, at times considered himself rich. He had more than he needed at that particular moment, but at another time 
couldn't pay the bills and had to rely on the generous giving of others. So rather than just sort of say, this is about all of those other rich people. And again, I, what, what Paul is probably doing here is he, he, I think he's clearly addressing a group of people within the church that were fairly well off. But what's interesting is the principles that he shares with the rich are principles that actually will apply to all of us with just simply the things that God has given to us. Luke chapter 12, there's the, the, the parable of the steward. And what Jesus says as the, as the capstone of that is, to whom much is given, much is expected. And so while we may not think of ourselves as rich, while we sometimes may even struggle, I think we have to be very careful to simply write this stuff off and say it doesn't apply to us. Does that make sense? So that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to come up again with these three principles that are all revolving around the dangers, the duties, and the dividends of what God gives to us. So, that's what we're actually going to do. Let's look at the first one. The first thing we see in our passage this morning is the dangers of wealth. The dangers of wealth. There's primarily two things that Paul mentions here. The first one is found in verse 17, obviously. He says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. You know what that word conceited means? It comes from two words. We've talked about this before. Paul loves to take two separate Greek words and he crams them together. It makes a new word out of it. This word actually comes from two different words, which means to be high and then to have a mind. And so high-minded is the best way to describe this. So conceitedness is high-mindedness. It refers to being haughty. Some of your translations may say haughtiness or haughty. It's a form of pride or arrogance that convinces somebody that they're better than others. That's conceit. You've probably felt at times like, boy, that's very conceited. You might have even told somebody they were being conceited, or maybe you've even been told you're being conceited. I don't want to make any assumptions. I've been watching this series on, I think it's the Fox Business Channel, if I remember right. But it's called American Dynasty. It's all about the rich families in the past, like the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts. And there was one particular episode on the Vanderbilts, and I found this interesting. The Vanderbilts, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, were considered to be probably the richest family in the United States. But they had new money. came from either the railroad industry or the oil industry. I don't remember exactly which one. And so all their money was, they made the money. Well, there was a place in Manhattan called the Academy of Music. And that was the place for all the the wealthy and the rich to go. And if I remember right, there were only 300 box seats. And they were basically owned, possessed, controlled by old money. Old families who no longer had to work for the money, so to speak. It just was sort of in the family, right? Well, the Vanderbilts and some of the others could never get into those box seats because they weren't liked by the old money. And so you had this battle between the old money people and the new money people. And the old money people always looked down on the new money people. It was almost like a a class, if you will. And so the Vanderbilts were upset. I don't remember Mr. Vanderbilt's name. But he kind of looked at this and he said, well, this is ridiculous. I've got more money than those old money people. So what they did, since they couldn't get their way into these nice box seats in the Academy of Music in Manhattan, was they built the Metropolitan Opera House. And what they did was they built it to be, I think it was almost three times the size. And it was much more open to the populace. Within two years, within two years, the Academy of Music in Manhattan was shut down. Destroyed them. In fact, just to try to survive, the old money folks had to turn it into a vaudeville place where they did vaudeville shows. Talk about the irony in that. That's conceit. Looking down upon this. Old money looked down upon these others because even though they were richer than they were, there was just something about you know those working class people making their money. Now, conceit is the direct opposite of humility or humbleness. It's warned against in the scriptures. Turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Out of the seven things that Proverbs chapter 6 
says that the Lord hates, haughtiness is listed first. Look at Proverbs chapter 6. Jump down to verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates. Well, actually he says there are seven which are an abomination to him. The first one out of the gate, haughty eyes. That's conceit. Haughty eyes. He also doesn't like a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. But right out of the gate, says that the Lord hates haughtiness. Turn to chapter 21 of Proverbs, verse 4. It says, Haughty eyes and a proud heart are the lamp of the wicked in its sin. We could go throughout Proverbs and the rest of the scriptures here and look at what it says about haughtiness or conceitedness. It's always condemned. Right out of the gate. Think about this though. When it comes to the church, it's got absolutely no place within the body of Christ. Turn to Romans chapter 12. So not only is it condemned across the board in the scriptures, but especially within the church. Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself. That's conceit. Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as the Lord has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each one of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to portion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, He who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference, that's the opposite of conceited, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. You know, Paul had to say something very similar to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, Paul addresses the use of spiritual gifts and the abuse of spiritual gifts. And he starts by chastising them because some, probably those who had the more flashy gifts, those that are visible like speaking in tongues or possibly doing miracles, maybe those who had been healed, those who had the gift of prophecy, they were looking down upon the lesser gifts, meaning those that aren't quite so flashy. You know, I've got the gift of tongues or I've got the gift of prophecy and you just have that lowly gift of helps. And so Paul had to chastise him for that. And he basically, the way that he twists twist that into something very positive is he basically almost says, you really ought to be honoring those lesser gifts, almost like how you protect your certain body parts by covering them up. You ought to treat them with more care and tenderness. He kind of does the same thing here. And so haughtiness or conceit, is condemned within the church. And so Paul, as we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, right out of the gate tells Paul or tells Timothy, inform those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, not to be haughty, not to look down upon. In fact, James has to address that as well. You get to the book of James, and man, James got some really pointed words for the rich because they were taking advantage of the poor. And so, right out of the gate, one of the dangers that Paul mentions when it comes to wealth is conceit. Thinking that somehow because you have more than others, you're better than others. In fact, what's interesting is even in some Christian circles, especially within the health and wealth and the prosperity gospel, there's this natural outcome of you are more blessed by God, you are more favored by God because you have more. That's just a sign of God's blessing on your life. And if you don't, it's because your faith isn't strong enough or God hasn't blessed you enough. 
Now, they might not come right out and call it haughtiness or conceit, but that's exactly what it is, and that's what it breeds. And again, it's interesting how that's tied to possessions or tied to wealth. We have to be very cautious that we think that way, that somehow because I have more that I'm more blessed by God. In fact, don't the scriptures ultimately teach something else? Who did Jesus pursue? Those who were lowly. Those with little. Who did he chastise? Oftentimes it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who, by many standards, were the rich. And so conceit. That's the first danger. The second danger that Paul warns about is fixing one's hope on wealth. Look at verse 17 again. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God. The inherent problem with fixing one's hope on riches is that they are uncertain. They are unstable. There's no guarantee that they'll last beyond today. Right here Right now, Proverbs chapter 23, verses 4 and 5 says this, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Again, that's Proverbs 23, verse 4 and 5. Isn't that an amazing description, that beautiful word picture? Don't fix your eyes on wealth. Don't put all your energy into pursuing it. Why? It's like a bird that just flies away. It's like a puff of smoke. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Jesus said this. We'll turn to Matthew 6 in a little bit, but for right now, let me just read this to you. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves cannot break in and steal. I've got some company stock. When I was first employed by Chicago Title, they did this employee stock purchase plan. And so I did a little bit and bought a little bit of that. You get this discount or something like that, you know. And within a year, they sold the company, did some other stuff. And so that employee stock was converted to something called common stock. And I've never done anything with it. It just sort of sits there, okay? And since that time, this has been probably 20 years now, the company that I work for has sold off parts of the company. When they do that, you know, you might get stock in that new company. And so this, what used to be Chicago title stock, became F&F or Fidelity stock. And then it became a little bit of Fidelity stock and a little bit of, um, I think it's oh, FIS stock, which is Fidelity Information Systems, another company they had started. Well, and then some other things happened, and, some, and then it became a little bit of Fidelity stock, a little bit of FIS stock, and then a little bit of C, or I'm sorry, BKI stock, which stands for Black Knight. You know the, the um, Golden Knights in um, Los Angeles that just won the Stanley Cup? That's the owner of my company. Well, the founder of my company, that's his team. It's called the Golden Knights. He's got this thing with knights, so we have a company called Black Knight, and then there's Golden Knights, and there's something else. Anyway, so now I, I've got... You know, stock in F and F. I've got stock in FIS. I got stock in BKI. Well, then some other things happened, and this did some other spins off, and then it became CNNE. So now I've got FIF stock, FIS stock. I've got you know CNNE. I've got BKI, right? And it's worth more. It's not worth a lot, to be real frank. But I don't even touch it. I figure, you know what? It's just money that's there. Someday I'll sell it, and maybe it'll be worth. Here's the thing: I can't watch that stuff because it goes like this. You know, and I'll give you an idea. The FIS stock a year and a half ago was worth $150 a share. Friday it was worth 56 I should have sold it a year ago. I didn't because I just leave it sit there. Okay? F&F stock, my company, was worth almost, I think, 55 or $60 a share a year and a half ago. It's now worth 38 Okay? So let's just say that what's sitting in that account, again, it's not a whole lot of money, is worth about half of what it was a year ago. Okay? You can't rely on it. My 401k that I have for work, okay, is nowhere close to where it should be. And my financial advisor keeps telling me it's a whole different world today, investing. Because it used to be, you kind of just put your money in and you just kind of waited, you know, and you could probably follow all the rules and someday you retire, you know. It has been like this, like a roller coaster. They shouldn't call it a 401k, they should call it like Great America or they should call it Cedar Point Investment because it is literally like a roller coaster. 
Okay? That's the point here that Paul is telling Timothy. Instruct them not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. It is uncertain. Look what happened to some of the banks recently. Now, hopefully, due to the FDIC insurance, the investors, the people that had money there didn't lose their money. I came across an interesting statistic from the National Endowment of Financial Education. You've probably heard this stat before. 70% of lottery winners are bankrupt within just a few years. 70%. Does that make any sense? I mean, some of the research I did looking into this, some of these folks that literally have won hundreds of millions of dollars within five years have gone bankrupt. How do you lose that kind of money? There's all kinds of explanations why. One of them is they become awfully greedy. They didn't earn it. They didn't know how to... If you, don't, if you didn't earn it, do you know how to keep it? I mean, there's any number of... You know what? The real answer is riches are uncertain. Riches are uncertain. But the only way to probably win the lottery and stay rich is to bury it in the ground where nobody can see it and nobody knows it exists. You put it in investments, you can lose it. You put it in your mattress, somebody could steal it. I mean, literally, it's uncertain. And so the second danger that he mentions here is the uncertainty of riches. Instead of fixing one's hope on riches, what does he tell us here to do? But... I love that word. But on God. In other words, another way to translate that is fix your hope on God. Notice he says, who richly supplies us with all things. There are two parts to this statement. The first one reminds us that the only thing worthy of our hope and trust is God himself. Plain and simple. It's the only one worthy. This isn't true of just eternal or spiritual things. Sometimes we think that way. You know, we think, well, we can trust God eternally. We can trust God with those light or those after death type things. But this is in the context of riches. And he says to fix our hope on God. So that means it's true of earthly things, that our hope ought to be on God in this life, not just the next life. Especially when it comes to possessions or finances or other things. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. I mentioned we'd go here. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 20. We'll start at verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says, The eye is the lamp unto the body. So that if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, he says, wealth. That's his point. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body, so as what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, what will we have or wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own. Those are some tall words, aren't they? Those are some hard words sometimes if we're struggling. I've mentioned before, I've been in both places where I have a little more than I need. I'm able to put a little bit of money aside for maybe some retirement someday. 
Maybe not. But I've also been in periods of my life where I literally lived less than paycheck to paycheck and had to rely on the generosity of others to help me pay bills. But these words apply. Every time God has provided. I can honestly say that. I've never been in a place in my life where God has not met the needs that I had. Now, doesn't mean it was always easy. Didn't mean I had to scrimp a little bit or, you know, go without something I felt I needed. God has always provided. Not always in the most comfortable of circumstances, but he has. And that was Jesus' promise. We are worth more. In fact, I've been working on our first message. On, we're going to go through the you know, first, chapter, first 11 chapters of Genesis. And the first one I'm going to be dealing with is how the gospel is reflected in Genesis 1 and 2. And one of the things that I've worked through is that we are the most valuable and important created beings in God's plan. We are not an afterthought. We are precious to him, valuable to him. And he comes right out and says, you are worth more than the birds, the animals, to God. And if he does for them what he claims he does for them, then he certainly will do for us what he claims he will do for us. So... We should place our hope and trust in the Lord himself. The rest of verse 17 reminds us that even though we shouldn't place our hope in riches, it's okay to enjoy what God provides for us. Notice that never in the scriptures do we find that being wealthy is condemned. Nowhere does it demand that we sell everything that we own. Jesus did tell the rich young ruler he had a problem with his possessions, which is why Jesus told him to sell them. His Possessions prevented him from coming to the kingdom, from coming to Christ. It's an obstacle. If the obstacle is wealth, and that prevents you from coming to Christ, then get rid of the wealth. It's the only time it's ever really commanded. There are plenty of rich people in the Bible. Some of them were even praised. God made some rich. For instance, Solomon. Others. Here we're told that the Lord richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, which means what he gives to us, we should be able to enjoy. And by enjoying those things, it does honor him. I think of it much like this. I've known some who said there should be a certain amount of guilt that the rich feel. Why? If they're using their wealth appropriately, as we'll see here in the rest, that's an honor to God. He says that he gives to us to richly enjoy these things. Which means when he gives us more than we need, we should enjoy it. It's okay to do that. I love the wordplay here. Notice that he starts off by talking about those who are rich. He talks about the uncertainty of riches. And then he says God richly supplies. There's this thread with this word rich that goes throughout this. That's the poetic element of scripture that I love sometimes. So what's our takeaway with this? I'm going to say it this way. We should place our hope in God, not in possessions and not in the pursuit of wealth. But we should also honor him by enjoying what he's given to us. The author of Ecclesiastes summed it up like this. Go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Jump down into verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor will he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to the owners except to look on? Meaning, watch their wealth be consumed. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There's a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. And he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry on in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. You know, you've heard the old adage, you, can't, you don't see a hearse with a U-Haul, can't take it with you. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Then he goes on and he says this, Here's what I have seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. 
In other words, enjoy what God has given you. That's a reward. Enjoy what God has given you. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. In other words, if God has given you more than you need, that's that's a reward. It's from God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Now, clearly you look at this, there's the warning of wealth here in this passage. Those who hoard it, he warns about that, but he also says, but it's good to enjoy what God has given you. So, if you've got wealth, if you've got riches, if you have more than you need, you don't need to feel guilty about having that. You should be able to enjoy that. I have no problem with somebody driving a nice car or having a nice house or wearing nice clothes. God certainly does that for some. Doesn't mean he loves them any more than the others. It's the way God works. And that's what actually leads us then to the second part. There is a duty when it comes to wealth. There's a duty to wealth. Look at verse 18. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So we have the dangers of wealth, and then we have the duty of wealth. The first duty is that we're to do good with what God has given us. It says that we're to be rich in good works. Notice the word play on that word rich again. Rich in good works. The second duty is that we're to be generous and ready to share. So he says be rich in good works, be generous, and be ready to share. That's the duty of wealth. The two go hand in hand. They reflect the principle that's found throughout the scriptures. It's that we should use what God has given us to help others when they're in need. Plain and simple. That's the duty of wealth. Remember what Jesus said in the parable in Luke 12. To whom much is given. And there it's not just the context of money, but it's the context of what God gives, period. Time, energy, wealth. He says, to whom much is given, much is now expected. There's a duty associated with that. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16 says, Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifice the God, or God is pleased. Which means when we use what God has given to us to help others, it is a form of sacrifice. And the, the um, word picture there, Hebrews is a very Jewish book, In many respects, doing good with what God has given to us replaces the Old Testament sacrifice of burning stuff on the altar. We now offer sacrifice to God by how we use what he's given us, at least in part. And again, I think that would apply to not just finances, but time, talent, resources. I know a family who bought a big home so that they might be able to rent out rooms in their home for college students. And they do it dirt cheap. They know they're away from family and they wanted to provide an environment where they're around family and that is their ministry. They've never made a lot of money. But that's one of the ways that they chose to use. They found this great home that actually had another house on the property. It was an old house, 1800s I believe. But another house on the property that allowed them to rent that out and that then helps to support them to have this house that they can then rent out rooms for cheap to college students using what God has given them. We already saw this in the book of Acts. We're going to go through it again, but Acts chapter 2. This is something that the early church understood. Acts chapter 2, jump down to verse 42. As the church grew, we see this, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to breaking bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. That means they shared their stuff. Okay? It's descriptive here, not necessarily prescriptive. It's not telling us to all build a commune. You guys all come live with the pamperins. It just means that they shared stuff. Yeah. It just means they shared stuff together with one another. It says in verse 45, And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one another in one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So they were sharing, they were taking care of one another. Jump to chapter 4, verse 33. 
And with great power the apostles were given testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land and houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each one as they had need. Jump to verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 29. And in the proportion, now this is key, and in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. The principle that we find repeatedly throughout the scriptures is not that you have to bankrupt yourself to help others. I know people um, who were very legalistic in their mindset. This was back in the days when I lived in Wausau, Wisconsin who had taken out loans to tithe to their church. That's not a biblical principle. But they were, well, but God says I've got to, you know, tithe this amount, and we don't, if we tithe that amount, then we can't make our house payments, so we take out a loan so we can make that donation to the church. The principle that we find throughout the scriptures is, add God blesses you, you take some of that, and you use that. To whom much is given, much is expected. He's not saying that we should bankrupt ourselves now. Remember the widow, all she had, she gave, and that was honorable. Do you think God probably took care of her next meal? Absolutely. It wouldn't have made sense for her to give of that and then starve to death. It's not what God calls us to do. So yes, when you sacrifice and you, you say, I don't know that I have enough, and I'm going to sacrifice, I'm going to trust the Lord to meet those needs, God will honor that. But there's nothing in the scriptures that command us to bankrupt ourselves to serve. Or again, to feel guilty because we might have more than somebody next to us. But there is a duty that we use part of what God has given to us. And again, here it says that according to their need, or according to what they had, those who had and could help did just that. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28 says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. You notice the Bible tells us that we're supposed to work so that we have something to give. That means part of the reason we work is not just to pay our own bills, but to see if we can then help others that might not be able to work or might struggle. And so again, Ephesians chapter 4 says... Work so that you might have something to give. Titus chapter 3 verse 14. Our people must learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. And so Paul challenges Titus. Tell them to work so that they can meet pressing needs. And that's likely meaning the needs of others. So one of the reasons we work is so that we might have something to give. Now, we may not always be able to do that. Sometimes we work just to pay the bills. And God understands that. But as God gives us more than we need to do that, then there becomes a duty that we use that. The Bible says that when we don't, we don't have the love of God abiding in us. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3 verse 17. Whoever has the world's goods, and again he's talking there about those who have more than they need, the world's goods, possessions, and he sees his brother in need of clothes, or I'm sorry, in need, and he closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? James says something very similar when he says, you see a brother or sister who's in need, and you say, oh, be blessed, be filled, on your way. He says, that's not real religion, and at least in the sight of God, and so John says the same thing here, and so the duty of wealth. There's an expectation as God gives us things, if at all possible within our ability, we should use that to bless. Using what God has given us to do good and to help others not only honors the Lord, but it's a responsibility that comes with what He gave us. Now, again, each individual is going to have to determine that. That's the neat thing about scriptures is there's grace and there's liberty in how we do that. You know, Rick Warren, um, I don't always agree with Rick Warren on a lot of things, but Rick Warren. Um, gave away 90% of what he earned. I am challenged to find anybody else that I know in those same circles that does that. I mean, that was pretty remarkable. And he admits, he's like, even on that 10%, I do pretty good. Okay, and some would say, well, it doesn't hurt. Yeah, but it's giving 90% of what he earned away to charity. I believe he's honoring this command. I think he understood the duties that he had with what God had given him. 
The final thing that we see in this passage are the dividends of handling wealth biblically. And we'll wrap it up with this. Look at verse 19. Go back to chapter 6. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good reputation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You know what a dividend is? We already talked about stocks. A dividend is a payment made by a company when you own their stock. It's based on a company's profitability. Not all companies pay dividends, but many do. So you buy stock, you get paid dividends. The more stock you own, the more dividends you receive. It's the way it works. When it's used metaphorically, it refers to receiving a benefit or some reward in the future due to this investment you make today. For instance... The dividends of eating healthy and daily exercise might mean better health as you get older. We would say, there's dividends to a healthy lifestyle. Might mean a longer life, right? Another example, you might say something like, the dividends of a good college education or a vocational, um, some vocational training, that often leads to better pay or a more fulfilling career. So we use this idea of dividends all the time in a more metaphorical sense. And that's really the way that Paul is using it here. Paul's reminding us that the dividends, the rewards of having a biblical perspective on wealth and using it accordingly, there are rewards for that. The first dividend that he mentions here is that they are storing up for the or for um, I'm sorry, storing up the treasure of a good foundation for the future. That's a challenging statement because Paul takes these two metaphors here and he kind of weaves them together which makes it really challenging to interpret this particular verse you got this metaphor of storing up something you got this metaphor of a good foundation if you render this particular statement literally it is treasuring up a good foundation for the future treasuring up a good foundation so the treasure is actually the foundation isn't that interesting Paul, in essence, is saying that one of the dividends of using wealth appropriately in this life is that you are storing up a foundation for the future, which is clearly a reference to eternal life. It makes you wonder exactly what does that mean? How do we store up a foundation for the future? We'll get to that in just a second, but the second dividend is a result of this good foundation. And he says that we may take hold of that which is life indeed. Another way to translate that is that which is truly life. He's really referring to eternal life. And so when you sort of wrap this together, in essence, what we get is that Paul is saying that by using wealth appropriately in this life, you are building upon a foundation in eternal life that allows you to make the the most of eternal life. Isn't that an interesting thought? Think about that for a second. What you do today with what God gives you builds upon this foundation that allows you to make the most of eternal life. How does that work? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid. Christ is the foundation, plain and simple, which is Jesus Christ. But then look at this. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So what's he saying here? There's a foundation in Christ. You get an opportunity to build on that foundation. And you can build on that foundation with things like gold and silver, or wood, hay, stubble, straw. In other words, there are good building materials and there are bad building materials. But either way, you're constructing something on this foundation of Christ. Verse 14, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he receives a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through the fire. Get the picture here? We're not all going to be treated the same way in eternity, folks. There are rewards in eternity. What we do today determines what happens in eternal life. Any Christian, anybody who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, is saved. We have eternal life. Paul says here that the work we do today will be tested by fire on that foundation. And if what we build with today on that foundation lasts, we'll receive a reward. He says, but if it all gets burned up, you will suffer loss. But you'll still be saved. That's an interesting concept. Because we think 
hey, eternal life. What do you mean? How could it be better in one case? And I don't know. I don't have all the answers to that. All I know is that we are told that what we do today, how we build on that foundation, will result in either loss of all of that, except our life, except our eternal life, which we'll have, or it will result in some form of reward in eternal life. I'm a believer that thinks that that reward has to do more with not little crowns and jewels and a bigger mansion, as my wife says, but rather service to him. I was talking to um, Daryl Bell last week, and he talked about that very thing himself. He's like, what I do today prepares me to serve Christ in eternal life. That's my reward. And the way I serve him today determines how I get to serve him. I think he's probably onto something there. So... When we think about what Paul is saying here, chapter 6, he's reminding us that this is almost a testing ground. God says, I'm going to give, I'm going to watch how you use that, and how you use that determines what you receive in eternity. You've got your eternal life, that's the base. (laughs) That's what everybody gets. But what you do today, with the wealth and the possessions that God gives you, ultimately prepares us for what we receive in eternity on top of eternal life. Now, do I fully understand that or fully comprehend that? I will say no. But that's what Paul says because he says you're storing up a foundation. And notice he goes on, he says, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Taking hold of it means really grabbing onto it. So if we really want to grab on to eternal life and enjoy eternal life for all that God has... We won't just be satisfied with, ah, got my fire insurance. There's so much more. Jesus himself in Revelation says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. He's not talking there about salvation. There's rewards. So, what's the takeaway? And we'll wrap it up with this. What we do today with what God has given us plays some part in how we will experience eternal life. When we use what he's given us to do good, to be generous, to help others, we're treasuring up a good foundation. We're building upon the foundation of Christ, which ultimately will result in rewards that will enable us to fully embrace, to fully enjoy all that God has in mind for eternal life, which again, I believe, means serving Christ and reigning with Christ. If we choose, however, instead to use what God has given us purely for our own motives, for our own selfishness, storing up earthly treasures, that'll all burn away. We'll suffer loss. We'll have, as Jesus said, received our reward already in full. So, we have the dangers of wealth, pursuing wealth. We have the duty that comes along with the things that God gives us, and then ultimately there are dividends. 